This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Nehemiah. If you go to Psalms and then go backwards to Job, to Esther, Nehemiah, uh, you'll find it there, Nehemiah, Esther, or sorry, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. So a little book of Nehemiah on chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. Not happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of her enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. That Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. And they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Symbolic sent a servant to me as before the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. And it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your heart. For they are all trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. This little trio of books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, uh, they're called post-exilic that books, that means to say that they refer to the time whenever Judah, the nation of Judah, that was coming out of captivity in Babylon. The Medo-Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonians, and they were much more uh, favorably disposed towards uh, Judah. And they allowed a phased return from captivity, from exile, back to their homeland. And this would take place over a period of about 100 years and it would be in three phases. And the first phase was by decree of Cyrus, and under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest, about 50,000, a remnant, Jewish remnant, uh, came back from their, uh, from Axide to their Judean homeland. And that was to rebuild the old broken down temple. And Haggai and Zechariah were the prophets during this time. And then a little later, Ezra, who was a priest scribe, he led another small contingent, another little remnant, and they came back from captivity also. And then the final phase was under Nehemiah. And he had been cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king, and uh, who allowed him, who made a decree that he and others could go back uh, to, to join their fellow compatriots. And so they did that, and Nehemiah and Esther teamed up together in order to rebuild the walls around the city. And Malachi was the prophet during that period. 
Now the book of Esther, it's set somewhere in between, between the first phase and between the last phase. And it's a wonderful book, of course, Esther, and it shows us very graphically God's faithfulness to his people when others wanted to wipe them out and destroy them, that God stepped in in a marvelous way and saved them. And so that's the background then to what we're going to read. Uh, Nehemiah was called by God. His task was by God to build the wall. And it absolutely consumed him. It was all he thought about night and day. This was what fired him. This is what gave him a reason to get out of bed in the morning. This was his goal. It was his vision. It was his dream. It was his calling. What's yours? Have you got a vision or a dream? Have you a calling? Have you a goal in life? What is it that you think about? What is it that occupies your thoughts and your prayers and your energies and your time? What is the wall that you want to build? Maybe it could just be a godly family. Maybe that would be the wall that you would want to build. Uh, maybe you would want to raise up a godly family. Most parents, I'm sure, they, they want to raise up their children to be good citizens. They want them to teach them uh, uh, ethics and morality and honesty and all those good things that we should be doing and we should have. But above and beyond that, we should want to raise up a godly family. Something of God in their, in their children. Something that's genuine and real and authentic. And so maybe perhaps that's, maybe you particularly as a mother today, maybe that's what you want to do. Maybe that's what your goal in life is at this point in your life. Maybe there's other things you'd want to do at some point, but right now your children, to raise them up in a godly way is that task. That's the wall that you want to build. And that's a wonderful thing to do that. And it's not easy in this world that we live in to do that. But maybe that's what motivates you or maybe to have just maybe a godly marriage a good godly marriage you know where the both of you on in, in your own way uh, are serving God somehow some way you're in the kingdom you're part of God's kingdom you're in it together you encourage each other you help each other because you want a good godly marriage and you do the things that will help you be and have a good godly marriage. Maybe, maybe it's a career or maybe a business. Uh, it's maybe something that you want to raise up. Uh, not just, of course, to help you and to help your family, which was wonderful, and maybe even employ some people, which would help the community. But above and beyond that, to have your business or your career or whatever, uh, to be godly, to have all the elements of God in it somehow. That when people look at you in your career, in your business or in your job, there's something of God in it. And that's a wonderful thing to do, to have. Or maybe just, maybe the wall that you want to build is to have a good, solid spiritual life. You know, that, that you can look back over your life and you can see yourself growing spiritually 
and you're, you're putting more bricks into place in your spiritual life every day. And, and, and every day, or at least as much as you can, you're endeavoring uh, to build yourself up spiritually. And that's a wonderful thing to do as well. Maybe, maybe it's to be a leader in God's work. Maybe God's already spoken to you and you feel that in your spirit that at some point you're going to be a leader in God's work. And maybe you're doing all that you can do to, to enhance that, the gift that God has given you to, to enhance it, to make it better. And that's wonderful. And so one way or another, all of us should have some kind of a wall that we're trying to build to the glory of God. Nehemiah's wall was a literal wall. It was a wall around Jerusalem that had been destroyed. And God had tasked him with that to rebuild the broken down wall of Jerusalem. And it's amazing that when you begin to try to build your wall, just the way that Nehemiah began to build his wall, how sometimes all hell breaks loose against you. Because the enemy of your soul doesn't want you to have a solid spiritual life, a godly marriage, a godly business, a godly career, a godly family. And so we're going to look at just ways that the devil would try to, to tear that down. That he would try to cause us not to be able to build the wall. So let me just show you ways that he would try to hinder us and to prevent you from building your wall. First of all, he will try to distract you. He was always trying to distract Nehemiah. Trying to find ways to get him just to stop building this wall. And in chapter 6 again, notice this in verses two to five. That Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. Now, Nehemiah felt he was doing a great work and he was doing it in Jerusalem. <coughs> but they wanted him to come to a lesser place. They wanted to come to the villages, not to the Jerusalem, the city, but to the villages. Not to the heights of Jerusalem, but to the valley, the plain of Ono. To do lesser things. Ono was 30 miles from Jerusalem. It was a long walk. It was way out of the way. And Nehemiah realized that and says, no. Why should I leave a great work and come to do that? I'm doing a great work. Why should I do lesser things? And the enemy doesn't care what you do as long as it's not that one thing that you feel you ought to do. He doesn't care how many lesser things you do. You can swallow your whole life up and fritter away on lesser things. Paul says, this one thing I do. There's lots of things he did, but there's one thing he says I do, and I always do it. And so... He said, no. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times and I answered them in the same manner. Then Symbolic sent a servant to me the fifth time with a letter. 
<laughs> trying to distract them to get involved in lesser things. You remember how Jesus entered into the home with his disciples of Mary and Martha and Lazarus? And how immediately he began to, when they sat down, to, just to teach them. And how that Martha in the kitchen was preparing supper. And it was irking her that, that, that Mary wasn't helping her. And so while, while Jesus is actually teaching, Martha burst in and said to Jesus, tell Mary to come and help me. What's she doing here? I'm part of it. What's she doing here? She should be in the kitchen with me. <laughs> and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about much serving, but there's one thing that is needful. Mary has chosen it. In other words, Martha, yes, it's nice to eat, and yes, it's nice to have food, and yes, it's nice to have supper. All that's good, but I'm teaching right now. And Mary had assumed the position of a disciple before a rabbi when she sat down. I'm teaching right now. You should be in here, not in there. You should be here. See, the enemy doesn't mind how busy you are and how much you do, as long as it's not that one thing that you feel you ought to do or that God wants you to do. In Genesis chapter 24, you remember how that, that Abraham wanted a wife for his son Isaac? And he sent out his servant Eleazar to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. And he didn't know how he was going to do that, so he prayed. And he went to a certain place and he says, Lord, uh, whenever I come to this well, uh, I, I'm, so he's thrown out a fleece, as we would say. When I come to this well, here's what I want to happen. I want, when a lady comes to me and says, would you like a drink? And I say yes. And she says, well, can I give your camels a drink also? Because camels drink a lot. There's a lot of camels. So that would be a good test. So the one that does that, I think that will be the one that you have chosen for my master's, to be my master's wife. And so that's exactly what happened. And the beautiful Rebecca came on the scene and said, would you like a drink, sir? Yes. Well, okay, I'll give you a drink and I'll let your camels drink also. I'll give them a drink. So that was the one. So long story short, he began to inquire who she was and who her family was, and lo and behold, they were related to Abraham. Wonderful. Everything was just fitting into place, and he knew this is God. God's in this. So they went to the family home, explained to the family. They're all excited and says, this is wonderful. This is a God thing. God is truly in this. And so they had some supper, and then they went back to... <laughs> to have a, an evening sleep because they had traveled quite a distance that day. And then next morning, he gets up. Eliezer, the servant, gets up and he says, listen, God was in this and that's wonderful. Now I want to leave. I want to take her back to my master. And they said, the family says, listen, could you not just, just, just leave her for a few days, even 10 days? What's that there? Is there a noise coming from something? I thought that was somebody snoring while I was preaching. <laughs> I was about to shout and wake them up, but it isn't. I don't know. All right, so. <laughs> what was I saying there, right? Okay. And uh, he says, could you not let her stay 10 days? And he says, no. 
says, no, we need to leave right away. They said, well, let's ask her. You can read that in Genesis 24. And when they asked her, she says, no, we'll leave right away. We'll go now. And that was good. Eliezer realized that had she stayed 10 days, then that 10 days might have went into two weeks, might have went into two months, might have went into six months, and maybe she, maybe she would have backed out of it. So he was going to make sure this was the main thing. This was the God thing. And nothing was going to stop them. And of course they went back. And then that wonderful marriage between Isaac and Rebekah took place. In Luke chapter 9, let's have a little squint here at Luke chapter 9. Verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Could somebody put that thing in a bucket of water or something? What is that? What's going on over there? <laughs> hey, Ferns, come on. You're the you're electronic guy. Come on. Get that thing stopped. There you go. Look at that. Jesus, easy as that. Thank you, Ferns. <laughs> Right, let's begin again. Right, Luke 9, verse 57. Not happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And that's a lovely sentiment, isn't it? That's a good thing to do. But Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus here was just, was just laying out, hey, if you follow me, there's going to be a price involved. This is going to cost you. I know it may sound exciting, but it's not going to be as easy as you think. That's what Jesus said to him. <coughs> and then it goes on. Then he said to another, follow me. But he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, was Jesus being unfair here? Was he being unkind? No. In eastern lands and hot countries, often people are buried very, very quickly, sometimes even before sunset the same day. And so it wasn't as if this man's father had just literally just died and in a few hours he would deal with it. What he was really saying is, you know, my father's aged, he's, he's getting old, he's getting on a bit, and, and he's not as able as he used to be, and I would just like to stay behind a while just to, just to see out his last days. And then after seeing out his last days, when he's buried, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus says, no, let the, dead, let the spiritually dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. Another said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are in my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Is there anything wrong with just wanting to go back to the house and say, cheerio? No, it was more than that. It was a bit like the trouble with Eliezer and that family. Could he not stay a few days or 10 days? And he knew that would just stretch on and on and on. It'd be a long farewell. 
Well, Jesus wasn't having any long farewells. He says, no. He says, come, follow me right now, today, this moment. And so the enemy will try to distract you, will try to get you in the place where you will not do what you feel you should do, you know to do, or God wants you to do, and get you involved in lesser things and distract you and take up your time, and you end up that you don't actually do it. He will try to distress you, to distress you. Did you notice in chapter 6 again, in verse 9, Well, let's, let's read a little bit from verse 5. Then Sambalat sent his servants to me before us the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you're rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying there's a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, let us therefore, so come, therefore let us consult together. In other words, uh, we're going we're gonna to write to the king and we're going to tell him, excuse me, we're going to tell him that you're going to appoint yourself king and you're going to do a takeover. Now, remember that the king had allowed them to come back here, was favorable towards them. And of course, they wouldn't want him to, to disrupt that relationship. And so here was a, here was a threat. Uh, here was something to, to distress them, to say, we're going to report you to the government we're going to talk to the king about you. Of course, it was a bunch of lies. It was all fake news. But it was meant to distress them, to bother them. Of course, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weak and weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen our hands. The enemy of your soul will try to distress you. In chapter 4 of Nehemiah, uh, reading verse 10, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times that from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall of the openings, and I set people according to their families with their swords, with their spears, with their bows, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters and your wives. So here they are building, but now they're battling as they're building. In trying to do what God wants you to do and be what God wants you to be, and trying to build that life or that godly marriage or that godly business or that godly family, whatever it is, and trying to build that, you're going to have to battle. There's going to be battles because the enemy of your soul 
will come against you. Just as they had to build this wall, then they found out these enemies were coming against them. And so they had to take up swords. They had a trial on one hand and a sword in the other hand. They were building, but they were battling at the same time. And you'll find in God's kingdom, you'll find as you build, you will battle. Nothing comes particularly easy in the kingdom of God because you're up against the world, the flesh, and the devil, so you're going to have to battle. Sometimes it's a battle. And you can get weary, and you can get tired sometimes. And if you read on that story, that's what was happening to them. They were getting weary, and they were getting tired because they had to keep on building, but they had to keep on battling, had to be prepared to fight. Have you been in a bit of a battle yourself? Have you discovered that sometimes when you attempt to do what you know God wants you to do, that there's a battle? Absolutely there is. Since the day and hour we started this church, what, 40 years ago, I've lost count of the battles. Lost count of them. But we kept building as we battled. And we kept battling as we built. Because that's the way that it is. And, and second, in Second Chronicles, the Apostle Paul writing here. In verse 7 of Second Chronicles chapter 4, Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not. One translation says struck out. In chapter 7, verse 5. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, Inside were fears. <laughs> this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Did I read that right? Inside were fears. You see, sometimes we make out the Apostles to be superhuman. But they were men and women just like us. They were human beings with feelings. And there was times, Paul says, inside were fears. Outside were conflicts. There's times he even despaired of his life. <laughs> you see, while he was building, he was battling. Rome wasn't built in the day, and neither will what you are trying to build will be built in the day either. It'll take a while, and there'll be conflicts, and there'll be battles, but just keep building. <laughs> just keep building. Thirdly, he will try to discourage you. The devil wants, excuse me, my nose is like a tap tonight, if you beg him my pardon. The devil wants you to feel that what you're doing is just a, a waste of time. You're wasting your efforts. It's going to be too weak. It won't last. It's too shaky. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never make it. And even if you do do it, it won't be worthwhile. And that's what they were trying to put across to Nehemiah 
and Ezra that what you're doing is a waste of time. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the bother. I remember many, many years ago, and this rarely ever happens to me. <laughs> when I came into ministry as a, as a young pastor, I, and I would meet older pastors, and some of them would say to me, boy, do you know what? I, I think I'm just I'm going to throw the towel. I'm just fed up. I'm just going to give up. I'm cheesed with this, off of this. I'm just, I've had it. And I used to look up and think, what? <laughs> what? I couldn't believe my ears. How could anybody feel that about God's work? Until I was in it for a good while. <laughs> and then I thought, do you know what? <laughs> Maybe they had a point after all. <laughs> and I remember one time, only one time, it was really, it was just an awful time. And I, I, I honestly, literally was at the verge of just saying, that's it. I, 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 not that I, I was going to walk away from, from the Lord, but from the work. I, said, I was thinking, that's it. I can take no more. I've had enough of this nonsense. I'm fed up with people. And I'm fed up with this. I'm fed up with that. And my good wife sat me down and had a long chat with me. <laughs> and sometimes we have to have a listening and a talking to from our good wives. And I, I, had, I had been focusing on a small group of people who were giving me jip. And I was at the point of just saying, you know what, I, I can't take any more of this. And she said, you're focusing on the wrong people, David. You're focusing on the wrong people. And I was. And thank God I listened to her. And I've never looked back. It only happened the once. I've never looked back. So you can get discouraged no matter who you are. You can't get discouraged. Stuff happens. In chapter 4 of Nehemiah, it says, and, But so it happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? See how sarcastic he is? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Because they had to build with all burnt, broken down stones. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he says, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up in it, he will break down their stone wall. <laughs> and so... Here was the sarcasm, here was the digs and the jibes, you know, here was the put-downs, all to discourage them, all to make them feel that what I am doing is not worthwhile, and even if I do it and I finish it, it won't work, it won't last. Even if I build this godly marriage, or I build a godly family, or I build a godly career, or I build a godly business, it just won't last. It'll be a waste of time, all your energies will be useless. That's what they were trying to get. And somehow that's the way the devil tries to discourage us. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For you have need of endurance. Some of your translation says patience, which is the same thing after you've done the will of God, that you may receive 
the promise. Before I came into God's work, I was working in, in Mitchell's entire company. And every day you went in, uh, you were working on a bonus system. And so you had tires to make every day, maybe 150, maybe 200, maybe 100, depending on the day. And uh, some days it was a breeze. You just sailed through it. You were autopilot. You were just in the zone. And it just was so easy. Other days you were tired. You were weary. Maybe you felt sick. The machine wasn't working. Everything was going against you. And you were struggling. And my old boss, and he was a great guy, he would come up behind you. And he was checking because there was a thing in front of you and you had to tick off every tire you made. So he could just look at it and count it. So he knew whether you were going well or whether you were struggling. So he'd come up behind you and he put his big hands on your shoulder blades and he would start massaging you. And he was reading to see how many you'd done. And if you hadn't done very well, and he was encouraging. Now, it's a bit like a boxer sitting in the, in the in, you know, his ring seat and the trainer's in there and he's, you know, the boxer, he's nearly out in his feet, but the trainer's in there and he's rubbing him, he's talking to him, he's encouraging him, you know, come on. Well, that's the way the boss did. And he would rub your shoulders and he would say, he'd whisper here, hang in there, kid, keep punching. Hang in there, kid, keep punching. And others, keep at it, keep at it. And sometimes that's all you can do is just hang in there and keep punching. That's all you can do. There's nothing else to do, only keep punching, keep at it. Because the enemy will try to discourage you. Nehemiah said at that point, he prayed, Oh God, strengthen my hands. Lord, I'm feeling weak. I'm getting tired. I'm getting weary. It's getting to me. Lord, strengthen my hands. And if you pray that prayer in the midst of your tiredness and your weariness, Lord, strengthen my hands for this work. He'll do that for you. And then finally, he'll try to demoralize you. <coughs> try to demoralize you. In chapter 4, to make you feel that you're building and you're battling alone all by yourself. If you read in chapter 4, because they, they had a limited amount of helpers, and there's a big work to be done, <coughs> And so they had to spread out along the wall because they had to not only build it, but they had to battle and safeguard it. So they had to spread out along the wall. And so they were far apart from each other. In fact, one of the things they had to do, if one was attacked, they would blow the shofar for the rest to come. So they were quite far apart. And it can be discouraging if you feel that you're just doing this by yourself. You're all alone. That nobody understands. That nobody cares. Well, nobody gives a rap what you're doing. It's <laughs> only interested in what they're doing. And that can become very discouraging. And so he, he, he knew his people were spread out. And he realized how discouraging that is. Each one felt they were just on their own. So he, he had a plan that if you blow the shofar, there's going to be back up. But right now at the moment, you're on your own. You've just got to do what you've got to do. Many, many, many years ago, I, I forget how many years ago now, but uh, the UDR, the Ulster Defence Regiment, uh, had recently formed, and I had joined up, and we were ill-equipped at that time, and we were ill-trained, to be honest. It was people like myself, just ordinary people, and a lot of farmers. And, you know, farmers is used with shotguns, and you put a high-powered 
rifle in their hands, you had to make sure you were on the right side of them. Because uh, they're a bit of a danger with them. And so we were all equipped, ill trained at that time. Of course, as it moved on, things get better. But at that time, and the joke was we were dad's army. You know, and you worked all day, and then you went out and did your duty all night, and then you worked all the next day. And so you're a pretty tired dad's army at the end of that, let me tell you. But I remember there was, a, there was places called Key Points, KP. There were different things. Sometimes it was a big electrical substation that you had to, to guard night and day. <laughs> And there was one particularly one that was way, way out in the country, way in the Balamina direction, way out on the moors. And it was a big place. And so whenever we would go at night, we would take over either from the Marines or our Marines or the Parachute Regiment. And here we came, Dodge Army, <laughs> to take over from the fully fit, fully equipped, fully professional soldiers. And we were coming in with a wee rifle. And uh, I remember once saying one time to, to one of the members of the Parachute Regiment, I felt embarrassed. Because these, these guys, this was their life. They were super guys, and I felt a bit embarrassed. And I kind of was making a wee bit of a joke about it. I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm Dad's army come to take over. He stopped me. He says, do you know what? He says, if you get shot, you'll just bleed the same as me. And he says, in six months, we'll be out of here. But he says, you've got to live here every day. There's no hiding place for you. So he says, don't put yourself down. I thought, very good. Thank you very much. <laughs> I thought, not too bad after that. <laughs> But here's what I'm going to tell you. <coughs> at night time, and this was all at night time, there's, Sangers was like a, like a little tin hut where you'd end, a, you know, as a guard, you'd enter there. You had your rifle, you'd end. But there were so few of us. I mean, we, we were just down to the bare bones taking over. And so you were spread out. And so you were here, and maybe away, way, way on the other side, you could barely see it in the night, was another Sanger with somebody else in that, and that was about it. And there you were on your own in the middle of the night. And of course, there was, there was flares set around the perimeter so that if any intruders would come, the flares would go up. Well, that was wonderful, except it was full of sheep. <laughs> and of course, then when a sheep ran into the trip bar, the flare went up, the whole place lit up. And you're standing in your wee hut with your wee rifle thinking, is that a sheep or are they coming to get me? <laughs> And I tell you, your heart was pumping because you were on your own. I mean, the other guy, he was away. He couldn't help you at all. You were on, and the rest of the guys, they were in sleeping because they were off duty at that point. So I tell you, it was scary stuff at times. And then, of course, when it was really dark, about three in the morning, it was really dark in the wintertime. And there was, you heard trees rustling, there was breezes blowing, and there was all kinds of noises, and the hair was rising up in the back of your neck. <laughs> I mean, it was scary stuff at times. Good, you're just a, just a young man, you know, on your own. That was the point, you were on your own. You felt you were on your own. Being on your own oftentimes and feeling you're on your own can be very demoralizing. In Hebrews 12, 3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Remember we preached about Jesus on the cross, the seven statements on the cross. Remember there was just a handful of people at that cross. Where were all the people he healed? Hmm? Where were the multitudes that he fed? Where were the blind eyes that were opened? The deaf that heard, the lame that walked? Where were they all that day? Even to the point where he felt his own father had forsaken him. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Elijah, after that wonderful demonstration of the power of God on Mount Carmel, and he slew the prophets of Baal with the sword. And then Jezebel, Ahab's wife, that wicked woman, said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And he ran. He got afraid. And he ran. Nothing had changed, he felt. After all that, nothing's changed. She's still as wicked as ever she was. And now he wants to kill me. And he ran right as far as he could possibly go, right to the very bottom of the country, to Beersheba. And then right out into the wilderness as far as he could go. And sat down under a juniper tree and said, Lord, it's enough. Take my life. There's only me left. And I'm paraphrasing. Lord, there's only me left. <laughs> the Lord had come to him. The Lord says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And I, I think Elijah's attitude was, Lord, you're asking me what I'm doing here. Do you not realize I'm the only one left, that there's nobody in the country who stood up for you, only me, and now they want to kill me, and you're asking me why I'm here? <laughs> and the Lord says, no. There's 7,000 hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. I'm sure he felt, well, where were they? Where are they? I hadn't seen any of them. But they were there, and God knew every one of them. But because he felt just alone, he was demoralized. He was down. He was depressed. Nobody was helping him. Nobody was on his side. That's what he felt. And if you ever get into that position, you get so demoralized. And the great prophet says, Lord, take my life. I don't want to be here anymore. But the Lord got the angel to give him some food and some water and send him on his way. And he hadn't finished with him. He had another job for him to do. Hebrews 6.15 about Abraham, it says, And so after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. What are you building? You have to patiently endure until the job is done. Let me just finish with this. In chapter 6, Verse 14, my God remembered Tobiah and Sambalat, according to these their works. And the prophetess Nodadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elo in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. The ones that try to discourage them is the ones that are now discouraged because they got the job done in 52 days in record time. And that lets us know that if we keep building and we keep battling and we keep on keeping on, there'll come a point we'll get the job done and it'll be done and there'll be an end to it. There'll be a finish to it. The wall was built, completed, finished, ended. Glory to God. 
And as far as your life is concerned, if you keep at it and keep building and keep battling and keep on keeping on, there'll come a point you'll get the job done. (laughs) You'll get the job done for the glory of God. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone here tonight, particularly those, Lord, who are building something in their life they're trying to complete and to do and to be and to have for your glory. I pray, Lord, in the midst of the times of being discouraged and distracted and all the rest of it, that somehow in the midst of all of that, that they will look up and believe and trust you And, Lord, you will help them get the job done. Lord, you promised you would never leave us, you would never forsake us, you'd be with us even unto the very end. So, Lord, let them understand tonight that this job can be completed, that your plans for them are good and not for evil to give them a hope in the future. So, Lord, we entrust you. We entrust our lives into your hands tonight trusting you, believing you, that you will help us finish what we have started. Thank you, Lord, that you're the author and you're the finisher of our faith. You're the Alpha, you're the Omega, you're the beginning, you're the ending in our lives. And so we're going to believe and trust you tonight that it will be done for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.